lay out the kind of um, body of my research. Um, and there are, the, the talk is gonna focus on the adoption of indigenous children, mostly by non-indigenous families. So I'm particularly happy to be able to present this material in Canada, which has a parallel history. Um, so the talk is gonna have three parts. First, I'm gonna go through the history of adoptions of indigenous children during the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, this will highlight the legal and social connections between adoptions and genocide in Guatemala and propose forcible adoptions as a little understood tool of war and total war. War not just on military actors, but war on families. Um, second, I'm gonna run through some historical parallels to this case in Guatemala, um, including the US, Canada, and Australia, and that's gonna be kind of a brief comparative look at um, forcible adoptions, particularly of indigenous uh, First Nations and Aboriginal children. And third, I'm gonna consider more broadly the ethics of international adoption. And by ethics of international adoption, I don't mean weighing whether the adoption should have happened or not. That's not what I mean by the ethics of the adoption or rehearsing the arguments of whether a child is better off in a materially um, more comfortable family or not. Rather, what I'm interested in is exploring the process of consent. So exploring the process of consent and its limitations for the birth family in the context of violence and global inequality. Um, I wanna draw your attention to issues of consent and cultural transfer uh, at the moment of adoption, but also into the present, because these are ethical concerns that continue on into the lives of adoptees, who, many of whom I've met in Guatemala who are searching for their birth parents. Um, adoption is not just the legal act of transfer, but an ongoing lived experience for many thousands of people, um, and so, what I'm asking myself as I prepare what was once my dissertation and is now a book manuscript for um, submission as a book is what relevance can some of this research have for not just for the academy but also um, for uncovering the links between adoption more and genocide more generally and, and what impact might that have on adoptees and their families both in Guatemala and abroad. Um, because this talk is taken from a chapter of a book that I'm currently revising, your suggestions and comments will be particularly welcome. So anything that is unclear, anything that is troubling, there are many troubling things about this story, um, please uh, bring to my attention and we can discuss them during the question and answer. The book begins with the founding of the Guatemalan welfare state in the 1960s, which was quite late in the, in the Latin American context. And it continues until the closure of international adoptions from Guatemala in 2008, among allegations of fraud and kidnapping. Um, so in December 1948, we're going to take a kind of more global look. Um, in December 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution that legally defined genocide for the first time. The definition included five acts, quote, committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Um, genocide is normally thought of as massacres. That's the classic definition. But the fifth act deemed legally constitutive of genocide was, quote, forcibly transferring children of the group, of the targeted group, to another group, unquote. So forcible adoption is part of the legal definition of genocide starting as early as 1948. Um, also in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights asserted that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his nationality. And historian Tara Zara has argued that together these two resolutions represented the emergence of what she calls a new international norm, that the denationalization of children itself is an abuse of human rights. And where does adoption fit into that paradigm? Adoption is, 
fits uneasily there because it's both a form of renationalization and denationalization. Through adoption, um, adoption provides a new family, a new identity, and often a new nationality, but has historically also represented the loss um, of identity and nationality as the child in question moves from one country to another. Um, these individual passages of children accord with broader flows of children from the global south to the global north um, as part of the international adoption system, which in its modern incarnation dates back to the Cold War. So this is a fairly recent development. Um, within what are called sender countries, I'm arguing that adoptions have served and reflected wider processes of the construction of race. So the racial story of adoptions is not just about the racial differences between sender countries and receiver countries of children who are put up for adoption, but racial differences within um, the sender country itself. And I'll, as I will lay out today in Guatemala, adoptions were part of a larger process of government appropriation and disappearing of indigenous children during a civil war that included genocidal massacres in the 1980s. Um, so let's turn now to Central America. Um, the year is 1982. We are in Guatemala, the small and unbelievably beautiful country just south of Mexico. Um, in the 80s, the Civil War had already been underway for two decades. Um, the Guatemalan Civil War lasted from 1960 to 1996 and was, the, was Latin America's bloodiest Cold War conflict, and there was extreme competition for that um, infamous title. Uh, in Guatemala, an estimated 200,000 people were killed, 40,000 people were disappeared, and half a million people were displaced. Um, the broad strokes of the Civil War was that it was a series of US-backed military dictatorships in Guatemala attempting to get rid of Marxist-Leninist guerrilla groups that were responsible for the majority of deaths. The military was responsible for the majority of deaths. After the war, a United Nations-sponsored Truth Commission found that the army had indeed committed genocidal acts against particular Mayan indigenous groups. Um, the army during the war had accused these indigenous groups of, often wrongly, of supporting guerrilla fighters, and the height of violence perpetrated against them was from about 1982 to 1986 was the worst moment, but scorched earth massacres of indigenous villages continued well into the 1990s. Um, so to explain the racial makeup of Guatemala, uh, the population was roughly half indigenous. What does that mean? Indigenous in Guatemala does not mean the same thing as indigenous in Mexico, for example, where people who have indigenous heritage have in large numbers been absorbed into mestizo culture, um, although, uh, and may not self-identify as indigenous, although of course there are distinct <coughs> indigenous groups in Mexico as well. In Guatemala, by contrast, the indigenous people were and remain a recognizably distinct group. Um, they tend to speak one of 22 Mayan languages and uh, particularly the women tend to wear distinctive clothing uh, woven on a backstrap loom. So the men might wear jeans and a t-shirt and, and the women might wear uh, hand-woven clothing. Um, the lines surrounding indigenous identity in Guatemala are both rigid, they're enforced with virulent racism, and also possible to cross. So it's a very complicated racial uh, network. If ethnicity is socially determined in this way through a combination of what clothing people wear and what language they speak, um, it's possible to cross ethnic lines from indigenous to Latino, and Latino is the Guatemalan word for non-indigenous. Um, you change your clothing, you learn Spanish, you go to a marketplace outside of your village and all of a sudden you can present yourself as Latino. So I wanted to emphasize that these two communities in Guatemala, indigenous and Latino, did not live entirely separately. 
Um, these are communities that developed alongside one another, interacted, intermarried with one another through internal labor migrations in Guatemala throughout the 20th century for the coffee and sugar. Um, plantation harvest, domestic service is a large point of convergence in Mexico, uh, in Guatemala. Marriage, in other words, they're separate neither in work nor in life, so I want to make that very clear. Um, this is important because my discussion of genocide today is not intended to indicate that the alternative was some sort of unbroken, pristine cultural transmission of a static Mayan culture. Indigenous groups had not lived in any kind of meaningful um, isolation in Guatemala since the conquest. Um, indeed, many of the perpetrators of the genocide were themselves indigenous, impressed into service in the military and in local defense groups called patrullas de autodefensa civil, like uh, civil patrol groups. Um, Nevertheless, the indigenous were disproportionately suffered from the violence during the Civil War. Now, Guatemala's Truth Commission uh, estimated that over 10% of those who disappeared during the war were children. That's 5,000 disappeared children just during, the, just during the Civil War. And what I mean by disappeared in this context is uh, the classic Latin American state crime of, in which a person vanishes without a trace. So, they're bundled off into a van, or they simply never come home. And then it's left to their loved ones to imagine what might have happened to them. Might they still be alive? Might they be dead? If they are alive, where are they? Um, although we know that the likeliest outcome for disappeared people throughout Latin America was um, that state officials, be it police, army, or death squads, had murdered the disappeared. Um, and as with all deaths and disappearances during the war, Indigenous people were overrepresented. So indigenous peoples in Guatemala were, are an estimated 83% of the war's victims. Among the disappeared, children were much more likely to survive than adults. How is that? Um, this was true in both Central American civil wars and the dirty wars of Argentina and Chile. Disappeared children in all of these places were, could be assigned a new identity. Um, this identity was often created by their captors to cover the war crime. In Guatemala, of the 5,000 disappeared children, an estimated 500 children were put up for adoption. These numbers are very round, and you would be right to be suspicious of them. Um, I can talk about where these numbers came from as part of a question and answer, if, if you like, but just to give you a sense of the scale of, of the adoption program. Um, the children were placed through Guatemala State Orphanage, which was called the Hogar Elisa Martinez. Um, other indigenous children, children, of course, were killed during scorched earth massacres, or many were informally adopted, and that's not the subject of my talk today, but many children were taken in by army officials and used as domestic servants throughout the war. And some of those, some of those children were raised as, as adopted children, and many were um, kept in the house as domestic servants. So I'm happy to talk about that, although that's something of a different issue. Um, the stories of indigenous children who were separated from their families during wartime are just starting to emerge now in Guatemala. Adoption files, uh, which made up the, the most important source for my dissertation research, were briefly made available to researchers from 2014 to 2016. Those files are now closed. I'm, I'm no longer even allowed to get back in to look at the adoption files. Um, basically what happened was the state, as part of the peace agreement, created something called the Archivo de la Paz, the peace archives in Guatemala. And a form, when a former general became president of Guatemala, Otto Pérez Melina, in 2016, he shut down the archives of peace. He said, we don't need archives of peace. The adoption files were sent back to the relevant ministry. 
a couple of journalistic pieces came out that the Guatemalan government didn't like about, about the adoption pilots, and now they're closed to researchers. Um, however, uh, Guatemala is unique in that those files were made available to researchers, however briefly. Um, the identity changes that I described were preserved in these metic meticulous files, whereas in other cases of um, forcible adoption during wartime, we can only guess at the details of how that happened. So we know that it was a bureaucratic process, but in many cases, files have been destroyed or have never been open to researchers. Um, in Guatemala, reading the files, you can see that sometimes details of the children's pasts were erased or changed. Um, the files are very long. They, they tend to be about 150 to 200 pages per child, and they have narrative accounts of how the children were, came to be put up for adoption. And you can see that the adoptive parents were only given the last um, iteration of the child's story. Often, uh, not often, in some cases, indigenous names were changed to Latino names, to non-indigenous names. Um, places of birth were changed, and perhaps most disturbing, um, some later documents listed birth families as padres desconocidos, parents unknown, whereas earlier in the file, the parents' names had been recorded, and that information was perhaps not made available to the adoptee. So that's, those are some of the more disturbing changes. Um, I'm gonna tell just a few stories from these files today. Uh, one is from adoption file 29-85, housed at the Ministry of Social Welfare in Guatemala City. I'm gonna use a pseudonym for the adoptee. I'm gonna call her Sada. Um, and this first history is of a formal international adoption. So, so that you can understand, adoption files are structured in reverse chronology. First came the finalization papers and then the letters and documentation of where the child came from, and these have all been written up by state-employed social workers. Um, so Sara was an infant girl from the area of Chahul. Uh, this was an infamous massacre site in the Ishil region of Guatemala, in the kind of northern uh, area of Guatemala. The Ishiles were the indigenous group in Guatemala who were most ferociously targeted by the state during the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, according to her adoption file, Sara was injured by a bullet in 1983, and she was brought to a hospital in Quetzaltenango, which was the regional capital of that area. Once she was in the hospital, a colonel visited her there and told social workers who were overseeing her case that she was an orphan whose parents had died, quote, in a confrontation with guerrilla fighters, unquote. And this was the official story as it was recorded in her adoption file. Um, Sada's parents may very well have died in a confrontation with guerrilla forces. There were a small number of guerrilla massacres during the war. Given the region and the time period that the colonel was describing, um, it was statistically much more likely in that time and place for Sada have been, to have been orphaned in an army attack on her village. So of course, it's possible that the colonel was lying to the social worker and that's what's been transcribed in the adoption file as the official history of this girl. Um, on the strength of the colonel's word, however, the Ministry of Social Welfare declared the girl abandoned and placed her in the adoption program. Now, in this case, there was no attempt to seek out surviving family members. Um, many of whom from the Ishil community were fleeing across the border to Mexico to refugee camps because they were being persecuted in Guatemala. This girl was eventually adopted and raised by a family in the United States. Um, I have no further information about her after she was put up for adoption. She may have learned to speak Spanish, but almost certainly does not speak Ishil. Um, this outcome is obviously ethically very complicated. I can only imagine she was raised by a family who 
love her very much and had what they see as her best interest at heart. Um, so the ethics of adoption, what I want to underline here is not at all straightforward. Many adoptive parents in the United States, Europe, and Canada, many adopted children came to Canada as well, um, engaged in what they called solidarity adoptions. So people who knew that the Guatemalan Civil War was happening thought that they would help a child uh, escape a desperate situation. And they were perhaps less uh, versed in the intricate details of adoption files being falsified in certain ways or being unreliable in other ways, or they took the, social, the Ministry of Social Welfare at its word when they said that they were searching for um, living family members, which in some cases they did very thoroughly and in some cases they did much less thoroughly. Um, so other adoptive parents, particularly in the United States, were evangelical Christians who wished to save the souls of children from a country that they worried would imminently fall to communism. Recall that Guatemala, like El Salvador in the 1980s, was, con was considered a potential domino in the global Cold War. It might fall to communism. Um, these are not contradictions that I try to resolve with the analysis of these adoptions. Rather, what interests me is um, the lack of meaningful consent from birth families, as evidenced in many of these adoption files, um, and the consistent separation of indigenous children from their families. Um, other adoptions arranged during the same period as Sada's show international adoptions going forward despite the existence of surviving kin in Guatemala or in Mexico in the refugee camps that I mentioned. Um, Ministry of Social Welfare officials were not required to inquire among survivors there um, or get in touch with people in Mexico, which is where many family members were before putting children up for adoption. Now, contrast Sarah's story with adoption file 7486, which is a different file. Um, in 1985, social workers deemed two indigenous brothers from Huevetenango, another part of Guatemala, abandoned and thus adoptable because their father, as the file says, was, quote, an apparently disappeared entity. What does that mean? An apparently disappeared entity in Guatemalan police records or social records generally is bureaucraties for someone who's been disappeared by the state um, or a massacre victim. The, in this case, the boy's grandfather did travel to the orphanage in the capital to try to collect the boys, but he was turned away and told to return with proof of kinship. Many indigenous communities in Guatemala are in remote areas, and most families did not have the cash or the means of transportation to municipal capitals in order to present their babies at civil registries to get birth certificates. In other words, the state orphanage was asking this grandfather for documentation that for social and economic reasons he very likely did not have. Um, either the grandfather didn't have the necessary birth certificates or the war prevented him from safely returning to the orphanage. Either way, he was unsuccessful in reclaiming the two boys and their adoptions to a US family were finalized on June 3rd, 1986. Another boy was given an adoption that same year, even after social workers noted in his file that his mother was living in Mexico, likely in a refugee camp for the displaced. Um, what concerns me ethically as well is that it's not clear that the adoptive parents had access to this information either. Um, so I'm still in the process of trying to understand uh, which parts of the adoption file were made available to uh, adoptive parents at what time. It seems to have varied over time and, and in different cases. Um, still, think about consent. Remember that the colonel's word was enough to justify placing Sada in adoption, but the indigenous grandfather's word was not enough for the Ministry of Social Welfare to grant him custody of his own grandchildren, right? Um, 
In its final report, the National Commission for the Search for Disappeared Children in Guatemala found that capturing and disappearing children served four main objectives for the Guatemala state during the Civil War. Um, these were objective number one, quote, to terminate the seed of future guerrilla fighters. Another, the second objective was to obtain information about suspect communities. The third was to, this is evil, was to attract parents to military centers in order to capture them. And the fourth objective of disappearing children during the war was to find children for adoptions, and it's put in this very blank way. Um, let's reflect for a moment on the term terminate the seed, which also recurs very frequently in survivor testimonials from the war as something that people who um, survived massacres overheard soldiers talking about in attacks on their village. Um, several army manuals from 1982 signaled the Army's genocidal plan for indigenous families following a major turn in the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, the, the war had roughly two phases. The first phase of the war was government targeting trade unionists and student activists and um, basically the intelligentsia at the city. And then in the second, more brutal phase of the war, it moved to the Guatemalan countryside and there were these scorched earth attacks on indigenous villages, as I said. Um, and so during the second phase, the army leadership cited a Maoist principle about fighting guerrilla insurgency, um, vowing to, quote, remove the water from the fish. So how do you deal with a guerrilla insurgency? You kill everyone around the guerrilla insurgency to ensure that they have no support. This was the justification for total war on Mayan families. Um, most army documents from that period were classified, hidden, or destroyed. Um, those that remain and have been made accessible in Guatemala show that the indigenous, that the army regarded the indigenous family, not just indigenous guerrilla fighters, but the indigenous family as a threat in Guatemala, as a breeding ground for what dictator Efrain Rios Montt's government called bad seed, and he would call it that publicly. In a 1980 counterinsurgency manual, the Guatemalan army identified the family, not the individual, as, quote, the smallest unit of counterinsurgency. So the smallest unit that had to be targeted by counterinsurgent forces. Um, so, oh, no, I can't skip that. Um, the army plans from 1982 and 83 showed that the extension of social welfare provisions alongside the army's planned escalation of racial violence were both part of a campaign to improve what by that point was Guatemala's terrible international reputation um, and also formed part of the plan to attack, to attack families. So how did this work? Um, Previously, social services had been available to such a small number of people that they were largely symbolic in Guatemala. Welfare institutions were confined mostly to the capital city um, and a few large cities. So in 1982, at the height of the violence, the Ministry of Social Welfare mobilized as part of the war effort and extended services to areas of Guatemala suspected of harboring guerrilla fighters. Um, it created 10 new centers and massacre sites, including Nebat and Chahul, which is where Sada was from. Um, the Ishil area of origin of many other adoptees from this period. Um, so in its 1982 internal report, the ministry recorded that it offered integral care to orphaned and or abandoned minors at physical and moral risk, physical and moral risk. So the government considered indigenous identity because of its supposed connection with guerrilla involvement to be itself a moral risk. So because of their suspected politics, indigenous families were seen as a risk to their own children. Um, 
while I was in Guatemala doing dissertation research, I interviewed a number of former social workers who um, had been employed by the Ministry of Social Welfare during this period. One told me that while she lived in the capital and was mostly insulated from knowledge of the increasing violence in the early 1980s, she only realized the extent of the violence in her own country through um, trips that she made to find orphaned children as part of the ministry's work. Uh, in San Martin Hilotepeque, after a massacre, a woman told her that she only survived the army sweep by hiding under a bed with her children. This social worker also told me um, that the army would call the Ministry of Social Welfare after massacres and ask them to come and pick up children. This is something that obviously didn't appear in any of the paperwork in the Ministry of Social Welfare, so this is the one source I have who's been telling me this, but she described it in great detail, saying that she never went, but that her colleagues told her that they went to an encampment on a military plane after a massacre because the soldiers had children, um, they didn't have any way to bathe, and they slept in tents, and then they came back to Guatemala City with some children, is what she told me. Um, she said she did not remember how many children came into the orphanage system that way. Um, many of them may have ended up in foster homes or been picked up by parents. Some of them, it seems, ended up adopted. Um, still, she was very clear about the fact that the Army was in regular contact with the Ministry of Social Welfare. Um, and uh, most former social workers were more wary about granting interviews than, than the social worker that I mentioned. Um, but another person who was very forthcoming about this issue was the former army chief, Benedicto Lucas Garcia. Uh, in a, this is surprising because he was one of the um, alleged architects of the genocide in Guatemala. Uh, so in an interview for a recent documentary, Lucas Garcia recalled that the army, as he called it, recogió niños, collected children, for what he called humanitarian purposes. So this is turning the ethics of what we've been talking about on its head, right? He was framing taking children out of indigenous communities and bringing them to Latino orphanages as a humanitarian act. Uh, Lucas Garcia, I would hasten to point out, has been charged in several war crimes cases, including overseeing massacres in Asian areas. So in none of the adoption files did I find descriptions of massacres or their aftermath. Neither did social workers record trips like the one that the social worker described to me. So this raises the question that about the, the very stuff of the historical record, right? Because if I know that the adoption files were progressively falsified in small ways, I also know that they have these glaring omissions in larger ways. So that begs the question, how, if at all, can they be um, interpreted for a authoritative narrative historical account? So, Moving to the second part of the talk, I want to talk about this a little bit in comparative perspective because this was not an isolated phenomenon in Guatemala. Guatemala, as is so often the case, is the most extreme version of historical patterns that happened elsewhere um, at different times. So there are two patterns um, that I think are important to think about in the context of forcible adoptions globally. The first is the forced disappearance of children during wartime and their appropriation by dominant political or national groups. And the second, and, and those children may or may not be indigenous, right? And the second is the forced removal of indigenous children from their parents and communities, justifying that removal as in the best interests of the child. So the first pattern um, is the disappearance of children during wartime in order to make the, remake them politically, racially, or ideologically. 
this is most associated with 20th century authoritarianism. Uh, regimes including Nazi Germany, Francoist Spain, and dirty war era Argentina. Um, the Nazi regime infamously kidnapped children who were considered racially valuable and arranged their adoptions by Aryan families. The Nazi kidnapping project began as a social welfare program, which was called Lebensborn, which means font of life, founded in 1935. Um, Lebensborn provided services for unwed mothers with racially pure babies and arranged adoptions of those children. Racially pure, obviously, is in quotation marks. Um, however, under the direction of Heinrich Himmler, Lebensborn expanded along with the Schutzstaffel, the SS, as Nazi Germany occupied countries across Europe. So as the Nazis extended the occupation of Europe, they would kidnap children as they went. And if, if the children were deemed racially valuable, um, social workers would instruct them to forget their pasts, assign them Germanized names, and place them with foster or adoptive German families. Just before the end of the war, Nazi authorities burned all of the Lebensborn files. So we have no idea the extent of that program. It is an infamous case. It certainly accounts for the inclusion of forcible placement of children with another group in the legal definition of genocide. And yet we know very little about the details of that case. Um, during the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939, Government forces abducted hundreds of children from imprisoned or murdered Republicans, so the left wing. After winning the war, the Francoist government demanded the return of more than 30,000 Spanish children evacuated by the Republic to left-wing foster families in France, Britain, and the Soviet Union. And this was a repatriation of the left-wing, the children of left-wing Spaniards to a now right-wing Spain. And this was fr framed by um, Francisco Franco, um, as part of propaganda about reclaiming the future of the nation. So children often hold a privileged uh, role in national imaginaries about the future of the nation. Interestingly, and drawing something of a parallel with Guatemala, Franco saw regional identities as a threat to post-war Spanish unity, so the government changed the Catalonian or Asturian children's names to recognizably Spanish names. Um, and this erased their identities in a move echoed by Guatemalan social workers who changed indigenous names to Latino names in adoption files. Um, child trafficking persisted after the Spanish Civil War throughout the 1980s and took a commercial turn in Spain with children given or sold illegally into adoption. And I've been reading a new book about this by a Catalan scholar that is truly horrifying called No llores que vas a ser feliz, don't cry, you're gonna be happy. And it's a scholarly account of this long-term adoption history. And in Guatemala, similarly, adoptions at a certain point took a commercial turn, which is a subject that I'll treat at length in, in the book. Um, obviously, the best known case in Latin America is Argentina, right? Um, as a reminder, during the dirty war in Argentina from 1974 to 1983, military officers stole as many as 500 newborns and young children from disappeared parents accused of subversion by the state. So these were political disappearances of children. The children's identities were erased or changed, and they were handed over or sold to proper couples, couples deemed proper by the state. These were childless military or police couples or others who supported the regime, the right-wing regime in Argentina at that point. Argentine authorities saw the children of people fighting to bring down the dictatorship as what they called seeds of the tree of evil, a direct echo of the bad seed rhetoric in Guatemala during the Civil War. Um, children, unlike adults, according to this logic, could be redeemed if they were replanted in the right soil. 
So if the parents were not salvageable, perhaps the children were salvageable in a political sense. This, this transfer, most of these children were raised by Argentine right-wing families, um, and that did not happen in Guatemala. Why? Because of racial, domestic racial differences, right? The disappeared children of Argentine um, so-called subversives tended to look like their captors, so they could be plausibly raised as the biological children of that family, and there are many famous cases of that. The indigenous child of a Guatemalan campesino could not integrate in racially in the same way into a high-ranking military family in Guatemala, which tended to be Ladino and perhaps more phenotypically white. So there were some cases of children taken in by military officials in Guatemala, but they, were, they tended to be more likely um, treated as domestic servants. So that's a real difference with the Argentine case. Um, however, wh what I want to argue is that in Nazi Germany, Franco and Spain, and Dirty War era Argentina, children could still be valuable to the state or to loyal or what were thought of as proper families. In Guatemala, only a very small proportion of wartime domestic adoptions followed that particular pattern. Um, the fact that the murder and uh, international placement of indigenous children was more common than domestic placement indicates to me that the government saw indigenous children in the 1980s as mostly unsalvageable. So that's the tragic conclusion that I think that you have to draw from the paperwork that's available. And so in that respect, Guatemala perhaps bore more resemblance to the second pattern of adoptions, which is the forced appropriation of indigenous children in countries including the US, Canada, and Australia. So briefly, before um, concluding with ethics, in the United States, changing the identities of Native American children was part of Indian removal. Um, beginning in the late 19th century, the US government forcibly removed tens of thousands of Native American children from their families and placed them in boarding schools in order to teach them to be white. That was the clear goal. Um, also to be Christian, also to be what they thought of as civilized citizens. Social welfare theories of that time held that separating Native American children from the poverty and social pathology of their communities was in the best interest of the child. So part of the project that I'm trying to engage in is tracing what was, what was thought of as the best interest of the child in different places, in different communities over time. This is clearly not what we would see as the best interest of the child anymore, but this was a real um, common social welfare theory. Um, a parallel history unfolded in Australia where the so-called lost generation of Aboriginal children were removed from their parents and forced to assimilate into white Australian culture. Historian Margaret D. Jacobs, whose books I cannot recommend more, um, shows how state policies of child removal characterized as benevolent in both the United States and Australian cases served broader settler colonial projects of consolidating control, not just over indigenous peoples, but over indigenous lands as well. So there's a land element. And Canada, as I'm sure many people in the room know, is currently litigating a similar history. The residential school system here, which was in effect from the 1880s to 1996, was designed by the Canadian government and administered by churches. Um, it separated an incredible number of children, 150,000 First Nations children from their families in order to whiten and Christianize them as well. Um, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada labeled the entire program a form of, quote, cultural genocide, and we can talk about what that might mean. Um, the commission found that the government feared that, quote, if the children were not educated into a white identity, 
they would be a menace to the social order of the country, a menace to the social order of the country that also recalls the Guatemalan case, right? Um, in the early 1960s, Canadian social workers were given jurisdiction on indigenous reserves and began the systematic removal of at least 11,000 children from their birth families, of whom 70% were adopted by non, uh, by white, mostly middle-class families. This was known as the 60s scoop, which I had never heard of until I started doing this research. I would love to hear from you if this is common knowledge in Canada, if it's taught in schools, or if it's just recently come to light. There, there was a class action lawsuit in Ontario um, in 2017 that has paid out reparations to the families of people affected by the 60s scoop. Um, but it has only recently been acknowledged by the Canadian government as an attempt to erase native identity. <coughs> so finally, the ethic, a kind of broader look at the ethics of the situation, and then I'll be happy to take questions. Um, why am I laying out all these parallel cases alongside the Guatemalan case? I, I want to suggest, on the one hand, the implications that access to these files in Guatemala might have for the study of adoption in other places, because we don't normally have a fine-grained look at the bureaucratization of these processes. I think that that might be helpful, although, of course, you cannot generalize too much from, from one case. Um, I, I do think, however, it allows us a close look at the bureaucratic process of, of the systematic separation of indigenous children from their families um, during war and peace time. And one thing I want to insist on is that the, the case in Guatemala, there's been a lot of um, denial that these massacres ever took place. And um, very often, the question of genocide or not genocide is framed in terms of intent, because that is the legal um, requirement for proving genocide. However, what I'm interested in as a historian and not as a legal scholar or a lawyer, what I'm interested in as a historian is, is the effect, not the intent the systematic separation of children, even if it was not perhaps expressed very clearly as intent in the documents. Um, the documents, as I have said, some of the military documents do, do contain hints that that was part of the intent, but I actually think that um, because the Vance protocols were available in the German case with a very clear um, layout of the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jewish people and, and many other groups as well, it's easy to try to ask other cases of mass extermination and, and cultural separation of peoples to rise to that same standard of evidence. And in fact, that's often not the way um, that the historical, historical documents are created or preserved. So part of what I'm um, trying to understand is what kind of history, what, what kind of historical situation can uh, explain this systematic separation of children that's occurred in so many different places at so many different times. The other issue that this research brings up is complicity, right? So adoptive families acting often with the best of intentions were unknowingly complicit in the Guatemalan state projects of the 1980s. That is an uncomfortable fact. Um, genocide, racist violence in Guatemala, the disappearance of children, and their forcible separation from indigenous communities are acts that are not easily reversible. These are acts that occurred during wartime, and now I've been meeting with adoptees as they come back to Guatemala and try to search for their um, birth families. Many of the adoptees don't know if they're indigenous or not, and part of the search is to find out exactly what that identity might be. So this is a very fraught issue, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, Guatemala is often considered the worst case scenario for international adoption, in part because of the commercial term that I haven't discussed as much today. 
Um, but also, which and, and some of that included high profile kidnapping cases and trafficking of children. The, what I found when I was looking at documents uh, about the private adoption system, which is where, as part of the commercial turn, is that those cases were actually vanishingly few. There were very few, there were very few um, Guatemalan children kidnapped for adoption. What was much more common was coercion of birth mothers in various forms, right? So it echoes some of the questions about consent in these earlier adoption files, whether women who were um, making the equivalent of US 50 cents a day were really in a position to refuse the overtures of someone telling them, you know, I, I know a lawyer, wouldn't you like to put up your child for adoption um, with a family in the United States? So um, I also want to point out that for adoptions to be ethically thinkable, you have to see a radical shift um, in thinking about rights in the 20th century. So adoptions are now generally framed in terms of the best interests of the child. This dovetails in a very interesting way with what historian Greg Brandon has described as a shift from collective rights to individual rights as part of the process of the Cold War in Latin America. Um, the classic defense of international adoption, and it has merit certainly, is that um, the child will be materially better off and safer in the adoptive country than in the sender country, right? Um, but this argument is not thinkable unless you consider the child as an individual rather than as a part of a collectivity that also has rights. So, an adoptee who I met in Guatemala recently who learned that he was trafficked as a child um, before being put up for adoption told me that he isn't against international adoption per se, but given the unequal conditions of global capitalism, that's not how he put it, but given the radically unequal conditions um, between his birth family and his adoptive family, it's hard for him to imagine <coughs> an ethical international adoption system. It's hard for him to imagine what that would look like. Um, in the Guatemalan case, a sad irony is that on their initial request forms for children as preserved in adoption files, foreign families often listed humanitarian concerns uh, for the war-torn nation of Guatemala as one reason that they wished to adopt. Um, some families who adopted knew that they were adopting Guatemalan children but were not aware that they were adopting indigenous children. And I point this out just to show the complexity of the ethics of the situation. Um, to conclude, a word about the ethics of the present. There is a somewhat surprising sequel to this history in Guatemala. As I've alluded to in the 1990s, after the end of the war, a massive international adoption boom took shape in Guatemala. Um, this very small country became one of the leading sender countries for children on the $14 billion international adoption market. Um, and at the height of the boom in Guatemala, right before closure of international adoption, uh, one in 110 children who was born in Guatemala was put up for adoption. That's an incredible number of children. Um, so that's where I began my research. I, I learned about that statistic and I thought that it must be wrong, you know, because that was impossible. And so I was, the, the re and it was not wrong, and so the, the research was really to ask myself, um, what kind of historical development can allow for such a thing? What kind of ethical development can allow for such a thing? Uh, previous work on international adoption has highlighted the racial disparities between the here and the there, the Guatemala and US, Canada, Europe. But what I'm arguing here instead is that if you look closely at the documents in Guatemala, you see that racial tensions, which in the Guatemalan case escalated into genocide, were an important part of what produced certain children as adoptable at all. So thank you very much, and I very much look forward to your questions.